Hello and welcome to the 6th episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, Som and I talk about Cargill, the years leading up to Cargill and the lessons which both sides did or didn't learn. So without further ado, here is episode 6. Is back we celebrated uh, Vijay Divas uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, the Indian Armed Forces uh, successful operation uh, which was uh, operation Vijay uh, in Kargil uh, and the Dras sectors uh, this was an operation um, as we all know to push back uh, you know the Pakistani regulars and infiltrators uh, sponsored by the Pakistan uh, government and army uh, who had taken over large swaths of uh you know, kashmir and uh, this was <clears throat> the indian armed forces uh, response to it uh, it was the first time this generation um saw a war pretty much unfold in front of their eyes uh, there was um, you know some very brave uh, television coverage uh, of this war and it was india's first televised uh, war i think in the last uh, couple of weeks in the lead up uh to uh, vijay divas uh, across international media and primarily on indian media uh, we've been seeing a lot of stories of some of the brave hearts uh, during the war um of uh, you know footage of some of the uh, intense fighting at that point in time the classic images uh, of the bofors uh, guns kind of sounding off the war uh, every day uh, back then and it obviously every year brings back memories to uh how the war unfolded um but today i think uday uh, you know through through our podcast uh i it would be great you know if, if we could really bring out uh, some of the more strategic kind of stories uh which is around uh, you know the lead up to the war uh, itself i mean it it was uh, many years in the making um and strategic calls that uh, both sides uh, the pakistani and the indian side took during the war Uh, and just some of the aftermath of it right and i think really through some broad brush strokes we would uh, try and cover uh, even insights that may uh, have missed a lot of people uh, or at least pointers that we feel uh, are important uh, you know from the indian point of view and uh, also a global point of view uh, to the kargil war uh, so let's just begin from the beginning right um, wh- where do we start from uh som so like you said kargil was many years in the making and uh, the genesis of kargil goes back about 15 years to 1984 and that is the year that india captured uh, siachen glacier siachen glacier had escaped cartographic aggression that uh, india and pakistan had practiced pretty much since uh, their respective births so siachen glacier had escaped that it found no mention in a couple of landmark agreements that uh, india and pakistan penned in the aftermath of uh, 1948 and 1971 the karachi agreement and shimla agreement respectively siachen glacier was just not mentioned the line of control was only demarcated till point nj9842 which on the map grid is where siachen glacier starts but in 1984 india in one of her first and perhaps the most well known uh, offensively defensive operation went ahead and captured the glacier and that set the cat amongst uh, the high altitude pigeons and uh, the pakistani brigadier commanding uh, the indian formation standing opposite the indian brigade was a pakistani brigadier commanding the special services group and he went by the name of parvez musharraf he was a brigadier of course then but it hit him very deeply uh, the fact that pakistan could not reach the glacier first and the fact that they also couldn't hold on to the few gains that they'd made in 84 85 and he tried rectifying that in right earnest by the time 1987 rolled around the indian army was supremely confident it was being led by general sundarji uh, you know we the indian army was tied down in operations from uh, kashmir to jaffna in sri lanka there was operation brass tacks in 1986 so and there was a close brush with china so the indian army was 
tearing itself apart in both trying to hold the nation together, but also engaged in uh, these sorts of offensive maneuvers uh, that the Indian Army hadn't seen uh, since independence. So 1987 comes around, and this Pakistani brigadier, the young uh, Pervez Musharraf, he thinks that he has imbibed most of the lessons that 84 had to offer. And the biggest lesson uh, that he took away from 84 to 86 was that uh, India's aggression, India's cartographic aggression, actually worked in disrupting the status quo. Because India still, if you look at it, controls the Siachen Glacier 35 years on. And the line of control is a status quo that uh, the powers on either side decided that this would be the ceasefire line. And it turned into the line of control. So Musharraf's thinking was that India in 84 had proved that cartographic aggression, that uh, the conflict could remain limited to these uh, high altitude reaches of uh, our respective maps. India had proved that. So Musharraf only had to actually act on it. And he thought that he would be vindicated with uh, control of the Siachen. Because uh, we have to keep in mind that the approach way to Siachen Glacier is much easier from the Pakistani side. The slopes are a lot gentler, so it's a lot easier to reinforce their supply lines. Whereas the approach from the Indian side is a lot more arduous. And India actually was... Uh, The India actually held these commanding heights in uh, 86. So in 87, he designs this operation where he wanted to capture this post called the Kaid post. It's now called the Bana post because India recaptured it. But for a while, he was very, very successful because the Pakistani army captured the Kaid post. And through that, they overlooked a key artery of Indian uh, supply reinforcement called the Bilafondla. And... Uh, he never expected the Indian army to be able to retake the Kaid post because the approach from their side was much easier, whereas the Indian side was much more treacherous. Uh, we've already fighting at heights that neither army was accustomed to. But the Indian army, of course, sprung a surprise, uh, placed fixed rope, footholds, and uh, eight Jammu and Kashmir light infantry, eight jacklight, was very successful in dislodging it, and it was renamed the Bana post. And now this, gen uh, this brigadier goes away, beaten. Uh, he was also on the uh, sidelines in the 80s of the ISI-controlled, uh, ISI and CIA-controlled jihadi war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. So in a way, he was falling behind uh, his peer group, his... Uh, Brigadier and Major General Peer Group in assuming high office. So this brigadier goes away and uh, now he has only one thing to focus on, uh, that is career progression. And he goes back to that and uh, he gets into the good graces of uh, Benazir Bhutto. He gets into the good graces of uh, a few senior lieutenant generals and the chief of army staff at the, at the time. And uh, pretty much this... Uh, operation of 87, which was unsuccessful, is forgotten. And uh, this but it remains alive only in the eyes of a very few officers who actually served on the Pakistani side of Siachen. And Pervez Musharraf was one of them. So when, by the time uh, 99 comes around, He has uh, assumed high office. He is the chief of army staff and he's appointed a few of his key aides uh, from his time at Siachen in few key posts uh, which actually look over this sector. And as far back as 87, the operation that the Pakistani army had penned to avenge Siachen was the operation in Kargil and Dras. So in its genesis, of course, it goes back to the Siachen operation, but in terms of its genesis, as an operation which was penned down, even that actually goes back 10 years to 87-88, uh, when Brigadier Musharraf and the Corps commander at the time, uh, they actually penned plans to occupy Indian posts in uh, Kargil, Dras, Batalik, Mushko. They penned plans to occupy these uh, heights when the Indians vacated them in the winter. And of course, there was no uh, General Ziaul Haq at the time and then subsequently Benazir Bhutto. They never gave the go-ahead for this because in their words, it would lead to full-scale war because India would not limit uh, her operations to just the line of control in just Kashmir. India would expand the theater of operations. India would open new, uh, new uh, operating theaters in Punjab and Rajasthan. So the plan never got its go-ahead. But with now Musharraf as the chief of army staff, there is no one standing in his way. And slowly through the months of January and February, when the 
snow is near knee high uh waist high in uh, certain parts the temperatures are biting temperatures of minus 20 25 30 degrees in the night uh pakistani regular infantry soldiers of the northern light infantry actually trek and capture these indian posts which have been vacated for the winter and uh, when these uh, incursions are subsequently uh, on earth by the indian army in may the indian army was quite shell shocked but uh, the pakistani army through these years was also testing its uh, metal for operations like these and the odds in these operations were crucially reversed from the siachen operation now so the pakistani army faced a much more treacherous approach to uh, these peaks in kargil and dras than the indian army the approach was a lot easier from the indian side but why they wanted to occupy these heights was because they wanted to control and dominate the feature that was national highway 1a and that connects srinagar to leh and they wanted to cut india off to cut indian army off from uh, leh and eventually hence siachen because siachen was the true design of their ambitions and so i think there are very the interesting operations in the early 90s itself when the pakistani army either through regulars uh, of the northern light infantry or irregulars actually tried these operations on a limited scale so why don't you tell us about one of these operations which uh, we won't name but what happened in 93 yeah so this came during a discussion with uh, people within the uh, establishment of the forces um, quite recently actually uh, and it was a bit of an eye opener for me too uh this was back in 93 where uh, in the mashko valley uh, there was uh, a company from the ladakh scouts um, i won't go into uh, which ladakh scouts exactly but um where uh, you know a, a couple of uh, officers uh, heard about movement in that area from uh, locals um, and they had captured um, one terrorist and uh, after interrogation got to know about uh, plans of further movement uh, what kind of followed over the next uh, couple of uh, weeks uh, and this was in november so you can imagine uh, the weather and this was an operation that was conducted at close to about minus 17 to minus 20 degrees celsius uh, it was a five day operation to flush out uh, the remaining group uh, which was close to 25 uh, militants it was one of the largest uh, counter terrorism option operations uh, by the ladakh scouts uh, it was one of those early feathers uh, in a regiment that was um, you know uh, raised uh, primarily to kind of counter the threat uh, that ladakh was facing from uh, pakistani insurgency uh, also largely raised to kind of uh, instill a lot of pride in, in a region which uh, had till that point of time not really formed any kind of india identity uh, but the uh, mission while uh, successful uh, i think uh, like you mentioned you know pakistan uh, kept testing those waters i think india never really uh, took the threat um, you know seriously enough uh, to kind of build uh, you know just countermeasures for it uh, and uh, i think these are one of the operations that are kind of spoken about uh, while uh, you know people i spoke to did mention that uh, they were more conducted but this was one of the Uh, larger ones um, and while successful kind of gave us a road map of what was to follow yeah so in that uh, same light you know around the time 93 94 uh, already about 6 7 years into the kashmir insurgency uh, on the other side of the border there were there was this cabal of uh, you know young generals uh, major generals and lieutenant generals uh, who were all in a way uh young generals in pakistan are also conditioned to see themselves as politicians given the turbulent uh, past of the nation they see themselves as uh, pakistani mustafa kamal's uh, you know the guardians of the nation the upholders of their uh, own brand of islam and uh, ayub khan yaya khan and zia ul haq all of them were cut from the same cloth and musharraf in time would prove to be no different but around this time he was a lieutenant general he was a core commander you know responsible for the core uh, based in uh, mangla which is in azad jammu and kashmir so it borders both punjab and jammu and kashmir and it has uh, 
you know it's within it's literally within sight of the line of control so they're responsible for the operations that they carry out there and uh, obviously given he was a strike corps commander in uh, azad jammu and kashmir when it was time for him to pick up his fourth star and become the chief of army staff he knew this area very very well he'd already served in siachen he was the corps commander in uh, azad kashmir and now he was becoming uh, you know the chief of army staff and his posting as a major general was that of dgmo the director general of military operations so if there was one man uh, who would have the guts to uh, give kargil uh, its voice and act on the plans that were penned and shelved in the late 80s it was going to be parvez musharraf and uh, things came to a head in 99 uh, Uh, atal bihari vajpayee in february was in uh, lahore he'd actually gone to pakistan uh, under his umbrella of also extending an olive branch to kashmir under uh, insaniyat jamhuriyat and kashmiriyat and uh, this uh, reaching out to pakistan and the pakistani establishment was also a part of that but right from february uh, you know these operations were already afoot and what's not very well known in india is that there were a few reports in the pakistani press in the days leading up to uh, vajpayee's arrival in uh, lahore that the pakistani military had refused to entertain or even receive atal bihari vajpayee of course they would go on to receive him in lahore after you know nawaz sharif uh, pulled rank and he ensured that vajpayee received the welcome from the army the initial reports coming from within the army was that they wanted no bond homey with the indians because at the same time they were infiltrating uh, these soldiers of the northern light infantry to occupy posts in uh, kargil dras batalik mushko uh, which you know in the months to come uh, they would sit there they would uh, cement their position they would create a few new bunkers they would actually end up using the supplies left behind by the indian army and uh, of course then it segues to may and beginning june when the full scale of this uh, infiltration and incursion is uh, made it comes to light to the indian top brass and i think that is when the uh, again moving away from the sort of individual stories of courage which uh, we're all very well versed with uh, what came to light was the ferocity of the indian response uh, the indian infantry it again like 1984 in siachen 1987 in siachen unafraid to plunge head first into a hail of fire undeterred by the fact that uh, company commanders and platoon leaders were being picked off by the pakistanis with headshots because it was that easy for them sitting at those commanding heights the indian infantry battalions were absolutely undeterred by this they continued to scale these icy peaks and near vertical peaks to dislodge uh, the pakistani infiltrators who were placed on these uh, placed in indian territory and in indian posts so in that way it was an ode to the courage of uh, the indian army it was uh, the indian infantry specifically even though the artillery played a very large role and uh, the air force was also pulled in it was largely a battle with the indian infantry won with its uh, courage and uh, through that what they also helped do was uh, debunk a few of uh, the pakistani assumptions that went into the operation of kargil in 99 so there were many pakistani assumptions some which proved to be right and some which were emphatically debunked by the indian uh, polity and the indian armed forces and a few of these were that the pakistanis assumed that india would not expand the theater of operations that the operations would lim- remain confined to kargil of course this is against the backdrop of both com- uh, countries also uh, assuming nuclear power status they both tested nuclear weapons in 98 so that assumption actually proved to be quite prescient from the pakistani side and it proved to be right the second was the fact that neither country would even talk about the nuclear weapons and the recently acquired nuclear power status and again in this assumption the pakistanis were right however what their fatal miscalculation was that they thought the indians would take this defeat lying down the indians would be very quick to rush to international powers or they would just deter because india politically was in a mess in 99 we'd seen about three governments in 13 months 
so the indian polity just would not have enough stomach and enough muscle to push through and capture these peaks but in this they were absolutely wrong india did not hesitate in unleashing the full might of her armed forces and remember this was a conflict in which on the pakistani side there were just four senior pakistani generals who knew about the kargil operations forget the fact that uh, you know their navy remained stuck in their docks and their air force remained stuck in the hangars because the chiefs of these service arms were not even informed about kargil there were even a few core commanders in the pakistani army who were just not aware of kargil it was just a gang of four generals who knew about this and it was the colonels and the majors and the lieutenant colonels on the ground who were carrying out these operations and contrast that with the indian response where india pulled in her artillery in full might and you know there still these uh, images that i remember from the war where bofors were being towed into kargil and there was still desert camouflage painted on them because they were being pulled in from rajasthan and uh, india put in all her bofors uh, they placed them along national highway 1a they bombarded the pakistani posts and very quickly the indian air force with their operation safed sagar also started turning the tide the indian air force i think initially was very hesitant to engage their helicopter gunships the air marshals were very very afraid very skeptical that this could turn into either india's vietnam or india's uh, afghanistan where shoulder mounted stinger missiles could take these helicopters out with very with ease so there was initial trepidation from the uh, air marshals as to what kind of an air offensive this would be but very quickly the helicopter gunships moved away and it was uh, bombardment by uh, our fighter jets and i think so in this regard it's uh, important to talk about the uh, pivot and the help that both the us uh, and israel started providing india so why don't you tell us uh, you know the story of how these laser guided missiles ended up in uh, the indian air forces hands yeah so i i think it helps to kind of look back at the indo israel relationships right i mean uh, starting all the way back uh, you know in 1948 when india did not uh, rec- recognize the formation uh, um you know of israel and um you know have always been a larger supporter of the palestine cause uh while india largely or most uh, of the highest uh, you know diplomatic debates uh, may have taken uh, palestine side i think what the uh, government at that point in time uh, worked very well uh, on doing was really getting uh, the support of the israeli uh, government uh in the lead up to the war there was um a transaction uh, of uh, you know the laser guided missiles that uh, india was going to acquire from israel uh, obviously through some uh, pressure put by the pakistan government uh, on the american government uh, they did manage to uh, get the message across to israel to stall the transaction uh, which uh, in in a move which may come once in you know uh, in a diplomatic uh, relationship between countries in you know in a blue moon uh israel actually uh, uh you know bypassed uh, the us and um, not only did it deliver it on time they actually delivered it a little before time uh, which really helped uh, the indian government it literally uh, felt like a you know finger in the american government's face and more importantly uh, what it did uh, from a just from a geopolitical stance uh, point of view uh, for uh, india was significant uh, because Uh, like we mentioned in the beginning this was a war the world was watching um and for the indian air force uh, to be empowered in that manner um and we all know you know the uh, you know the benefits that the uh, indian army kind of drew from having uh, that support um and as as you mentioned indian air force you know stayed away from crossing the loc uh, in engaging in any uh, you know air to air battles in, in for that reason and you know these laser guided missiles proved to be uh, uh, truly pivotal but i think post that uh, the indian government did not forget this favor of uh, the israeli government and uh, uh, from that moment on from 2000 uh, you know kind of uh, chaired by lk advani there were these uh, secretary level uh, meetings and 
you know meetings at a home minister level uh, with the israeli government that became a norm and continues to be so um so uh, we also saw a softening of the american stance uh, uh, at that point in time which uh, you know clearly i think we can give a lot of uh, uh, credit to the indian media too uh, who managed to uh, rest the initiative of who will control the waves uh, during the war Uh, and it truly was in the pakistan media you know as they were in denial for so long uh, about their own regulars being a part of this war uh, so i think a combination of of these things and most importantly this little transaction that kind of went through um, behind the scenes uh, really helped the uh, you know indian forces uh, to start tilting the you know favor, or odds in their favor definitely so keeping in uh, you know in the broader theme of turning the tide uh, like you said of course it was the indian air force with operation safed sagar it was also the bofors gun and remember this was a gun which was mired down and bogged down in controversy in the late 1980s uh, led to the downfall of rajiv gandhi's government uh, but this was the moment that the bofors truly uh, came through for the indian army and it had its finest hour and there are these little snippets which you'll uh, see in the war correspondents diaries uh, uh, the the three artillery brigade which was braced in dras uh, it had all these guns at its disposal 105 mm 130 mm both of which were russian made but crucially also the uh, 155 mm bofors and a total of 120 artillery guns and just a few stats from uh, their performance and their usage during this time which are sure to uh, sort of take our listeners breath away it sure did when i first uh, researched this uh, many many years ago uh, there was according to news reports at the time there were the total number of shells fired uh, during the kargil conflict equated to a shell fired every minute of every day for 17 straight days and all 18 guns for example of the 286 medium regiment all 18 guns wore their life down in 25 days and these are artillery guns which say the indian government takes about uh, 10 years to acquire uh, the indian army keeps them in service for about 30 years and all 18 guns of 286 medium regiment wore down their lives in the 25 days that they were uh, deployed in the dras sector so these stats uh, just go to illustrate the fact that while the indian polity the bureaucracy the uh, foreign affairs ministry and of course all the arms of the indian armed forces were in perfect coordination they were working in tandem of course there was some uh, friction between the indian army and the air force with respect to uh, the induction of these helicopters very early on in the uh, kargil conflict but overall the message which uh, india emphatically delivered was that her armed forces were superior and also vis-a-vis pakistan their coordination was superior and the fact that a lot of these decision making uh, the thinking behind these decisions the apparatus was increasingly being institutionalized and this coming from the 1980s where the indian army was very personality driven thanks to general sundarji and that is what actually inspired general musharraf to assume the kind of uh, position and roles that he did in the pakistani army he looked across the border to what general sundar ji was doing the fact that he was leading the army uh, by through sheer force of personality he was pulling the army by its bootstraps uh, into the 20th century a decade in advance that is actually what inspired musharraf into all his misadventures so uh, i think that came through very clearly by the end of the kargil war that i think finally india had found a way for her armed forces to work with her bureaucracy and politicians and for all of them to be on the same page uh, present a united front and like you said the media came through uh, and uh, that was uh, a true game changer in the global uh, in the eyes of the world so so i think it's uh, quite prudent to talk about the role that the media played and how the world perceived the kargil conflict yeah i mean i i think we all remember um unfortunately most of us just remember barkadat from that war <laughs> uh, but uh, you know nothing can be taken away from just the amount of you know uh, bravery most of these journalists showed uh, i do know accounts of uh, a lot of uh, indian army officers uh, 
you know begrudging the fact that you know so much of protection had to be given to these journalists mm-hmm. uh cordons had to be created uh new protocols had to be put in place uh, most of these journalists had to be trained as to uh, none of them had done war journalism before uh but uh, i mean each of them did a phenomenal job in kind of bringing the war into our homes uh and this was not really you know voyeuristic uh, kind of uh, uh, pleasures being played out uh, for the uh, indian public this was very real and uh, i think it accounted for a lot of the uh, success that the country saw under the bjp government in the following years because uh, as a people we had woken up to the fact that our country was at war uh, you know i mean i think coming from the fact that uh, we are used to uh, calamities of all kinds every day kind of popping up in our news uh, you know just trouble always brewing on all borders across the country for, for what has been like uh, what had already been about 15 20 years by the time the kargil war happened i think the fact that even the country kind of uh, bandied together and uh, saw saw through the war uh, and uh, kind of uh, came together to ensure that uh, you know as as an economy as a people we weren't hit as badly post the war uh, because it was something uh, that was at a fairly uh, significant scale i mean um, i remember and you would too uh, being uh, you know uh, both, both our fathers were kind of posted in the north at that point in time um, most parts i think most parts of the country north of uh, uh, pune was pretty much uh, aware of the war happening there were signs of it happening all around us whether you were a civilian or you were in the armed forces whether you were a you know a child an officer a businessman anything uh you knew what was happening and i think the media played a great part in ensuring that the narrative was aligned with what was happening on the front uh i believe it's it's been the greatest service uh, possible uh, at that point in time to the civilian population um i i only shudder in fear of what would happen in today's time of uh, the kind of media that yeah. we have if i mean besides shuddering in fear of a war of that scale happening i think i would maybe shudder a little bit more at the kind of reporting that we would have to uh, uh, deal with all the way from yeah. you know twitter journalists uh, to yeah. the so called real journalists but i think it was a game changer globally too uh, like i mentioned earlier we rested control of the media very early on Uh, i don't remember and i have done some amount of research to just see what the pakistani media's perspective on the war was there was obviously a very strong perspective post the end of the war which was to convince its people that uh, they had somehow uh, you know managed to get the upper hand at the end of the war and on certain claims maybe you know the citizens and the armed forces can uh, find some solace uh, back in pakistan but i'm sure uh, the fact that the indian media owned the narrative early on we were able to kind of position ourselves very strongly as far as a global audience was concerned because i remember a lot of footage uh, that would even pop up on a bbc or you know now when i look back at footage that was there on cnn's reporting it was really uh, stuff coming out of uh, media houses out here uh, and the fact that bbc had journalists stationed out here showed the importance of uh, you know the conflict globally um so yeah i think i think uh, Uh, it 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 was one of those unheralded jobs which obviously saw a lot of uh, disdain from many quarters but it was an important job which was you know commendably done yeah definitely and just taking away from something you said there the fact that india controlled the narrative so tightly that every single image that was put out in a global media house was the indian image so it was really the indian point of view and uh, this also ended up this was a byproduct of the fact that over in pakistan it was so busy denying responsibility for this uh, till very deep into the war till nawaz sharif ended up in the us on july 4th which is their independence day uh, you know essentially a begging bowl in hand asking for uh, an armistice asking for a peace uh, to the kargil conflict the fact remained that the pakistani army had actually disavowed its regular army soldiers which were out there on these icy peaks and uh, i think the pakistan came to it they found their reckoning very slowly because right after the war the immediate narrative there was the fact that the politicians let the nation down whereas the army could have pulled through 
the army actually held the upper hand that's what was told to the pakistani population uh the politicians let them down because they had these images of nawaz sharif in uh, the us on 4th of july where typically bill clinton would do no business uh, apart from uh, local business his own national business so that ended up being the enduring image of kargil on the pakistani side and in time that is what helped uh, parvez musharraf cement his hold over power and that is what eventually led to the coup uh, later in 99 and uh, you know there's this uh, jocular way that all pakistanis talk about 99 uh, the fact that it was one of those events where either it would be court martial or martial law and it mm. ended up being martial law because nawaz sharif was just not strong enough to court martial musharraf and when he tried to have him removed as the chief of army staff uh he affected this coup where his gang of four again came to his aid and uh, you know very evocative images of uh, musharraf actually coming back from sri lanka and his plane was denied a landing slot in karachi and they were asked to divert their plane to india and uh, this is right after 99 in kargil and nawaz sharif refused permission for musharraf to land and that is when musharraf's cabal of four uh, they coalesce power and uh, the army rushes into the air traffic controller of uh, of karachi airport uh, they place their own soldiers there and they let the plane land and that as they say is it uh, nawaz sharif was consigned to uh, exile in saudi arabia fate would which again befall uh, musharraf himself when uh, mm-hmm. nawaz sharif came back to power but that was the legacy of uh, 99 on the pakistani side and uh, you know in the immediate aftermath uh, there were a few lessons i think from the indian perspective as much as the fact that you know all the arms of the indian uh, machinery its bureaucracy armed forces and politics politicians they all worked so well uh, there was still this lingering doubt whether we'd actually internalize the lot of these messages and of course kargil uh, war committee was instituted uh, there was a fact finding mission there were recommendations which were put out a lot of which have still not been implemented by the way but uh, a very visible and clear symbol of the fact that we didn't internalize these messages was operation parakram in december 2001 uh, so again so uh, you know just briefly why don't you walk us through the lead up to op parakram in uh, december 2001 yeah so um, it it all kind of began uh, with uh, a, a terrorist attack uh, on the parliament in india um, and uh, you know when you read different accounts of uh, the terrorist attack one very uh, interesting summary of it was uh, uh, how in that um, uh point in time um, uh you know there there was uh, you know an influence from uh, the uh, uh pakistan government to be able to uh, i mean sorry the pakistan uh, isi to be able to uh, move forces uh, away from uh, the western uh, frontier of pakistan to the eastern frontier towards the indian uh, border uh, to be able to really help uh, movement of uh, the al qaeda Uh, and this was post uh, 9/11 and this was when uh, bin laden was uh, supposedly uh, holed up on the western frontier uh, and uh, you know the us army and the pakistan army uh, was geared to uh, take him out because there was a lot of uh, pressure on parvez musharraf uh, by the american government but the only way they could kind of move a huge swath of the army uh, to the eastern uh, frontier was to bring the indian government uh, to Uh, push their uh, you know forces onto the border so they had to uh, basically uh, execute a operation uh, that would cause enough damage for the uh, indian government uh, to get the army to the border but not necessarily go to war again and i think even the indian uh, army at that point in time and the indian uh, polity realized that another war was uh, going to come with uh, significant uh, repercussions that close to uh, kargil uh, they had just soothed a lot of nerves uh, globally uh, and it would have been uh, uh, tough to do that um, and what we saw was post uh, the attack on the parliament while um, there there were no uh, casualties uh, of you know any mps or uh, any other members of the government which would have led to pretty much full scale war 
uh, what followed up was uh, one of the largest um, you know escalations and uh, movements of the uh, uh, indian army uh, to the border um, but without a real war unfolding um, but but what, what what do you see as you know some of the lessons that were uh, kind of not learned uh, from uh, two years ago i mean three years ago uh, during that uh, escalation i think the biggest lesson that the just us as indians we did not internalize was 99 should have been recognition of the fact that large scale conventional engagement was entirely consigned to the 20th century it would not happen in the 21st century i think that is something the government just did not realize and by the time 2001 rolled about again taking a detour and deep dive back into history the fact that the only playbook available to the government in terms of military options terms of an offensive operation was something which was again penned by general sundarji in the late 1980s it was called the cold start doctrine and it relied on reorganizing indian the indian army's offensive power away from the three large strike corps uh into smaller division sized uh, battle groups so a division would be about 30000 to 50000 troops and they were expected to combine a mechanized infantry element an artillery element an armored element and this would be very reminiscent of the soviet union's operational maneuver groups and the fact that sundarji penned his doctrine the cold start doctrine which was later called the sundarji doctrine in 1987 and the fact that the indian army a was using that playbook in 2001 but without actually moving away india's offensive power away from the three large strike corps so in truth when 2001 came about the indian army's three strike groups but still these three corps based in the hinterland in i think mathura bhatinda and bhopal so there was such a long physical distance for them to traverse to be actually mobilized on india's western and northern frontiers that instead of taking the 48 to 72 hours that general sundarji envisioned in 1987 the indian army actually took 3 weeks to mobilize in december and january of uh, 2002 so by that time it was such a long time that musharraf actually went to the us he wrung concessions from the us he came back to pakistan and he was able to make his famous uh, denouncing the terrorist speech which placated india and by the time the indian army actually mobilized on her borders uh, we'd lost more soldiers in mobilizing than we'd lost in all of operation vijay and kargil 2 years ago so the indian army was in absolutely no shape way or form ready to fight another conventional battle and that showed this glaring defect in the indian top rung leadership's thinking that we were still relying on plans which were penned in 87 which may have been very good plans for the new millennium new century but we actually hadn't gone through with the reform we actually hadn't gone through with the restructuring that it would have necessitated for us to be successful so i think 2001 and op parakram uh, which led which rolled into the 2002 as well was an abject failure because musharraf uh, got away scot free pakistan got away scot free and they made just perfunctory promises which had to placate india because india was in no position to engage militarily and it proved to vajpayee it proved to the armed forces that they had to radically update not just their machinery not just their equipment but also the doctrines of engagement and i think that is a journey which you know then takes us from 2001 to 2017 18 and 19 when india actually started conducting surgical strikes india increased its uh, covert intelligence presence in various hotspots uh, in south asia so it's a journey a very painful journey with the indian armed forces and the intelligence agencies had to undertake because 2001 i think is seared in everyone's conscience especially in the armed forces but also for someone like uh, i think you and i our uh, army school buses overnight turned from uh, being the olive green uh, indian army buses to state transport buses because every Definitely. single uh, machine vehicle and man even from as far south as uh, 
Secunderabad and Bangalore were being pulled into uh, guarding and being mobilized on the border. So I think it was very, very visible failure on the Indian uh, Indian polities and armed services uh, part. Right, right. So in 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 closing, Uday, I just wanted to ideally touch upon you know one final factor uh, in the entire aftermath of the war. Uh, while on the uh, side of the armed forces, you know the 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 def- definition of how we kind of approach uh, a similar situation or just the kind of challenges that the Pakistan government uh, through its army regulars and uh, its uh, terror proponents have been able to throw at us. Uh, I think another um, you know key leverage and or a key uh, support factor that we had during uh, uh, the Kargil war. Uh, the locals itself, right? Uh, uh, I mean, it is well documented of how uh, the locals were the ones uh, in in the Kargil Dras uh, sectors um, were the ones who first alerted uh, the Indian Army uh, to the threat of the infiltrators. Uh, there is a classic account um, of this uh, 18-year-old, uh, I mean, uh, actually a 19-year-old girl in. Uh, uh, Ladakh, uh, who was getting married uh, to this 18-year-old boy from her village, uh, and this I read recently uh, uh, in the Mint, um, and uh, it was their wedding. And uh, overlooking, I mean, their wedding was in this little village. It was in the valley. Uh, it was in a valley in uh, uh, close to Leh, uh, and there were terrorists sitting up uh, atop the mountain there, uh, throwing stones at them. Uh, and uh, yeah. and the entire village, I mean, the entire wedding party thought it was uh, goats climbing up the mountains and you know rocks falling rolling down the hills, uh, but it was really uh, you know terrorists uh, sitting wow. there and entertaining themselves. Uh, and uh, next day, after the celebrations of the wedding, uh, when some of the uh, villagers went up the hill uh, to get you know provisions from the nearby village, uh, they saw some of these terrorists sleeping there. Uh, these there were. Tons of these stories uh, across the valley at that point in time, and I think, uh, I mean, all the way from Ladakh to Kashmir, what we had at that point was uh, a really successful relationship with the people. Um, there was uh, goodwill that had been built out. Uh, you you have been to uh, you know Turtuk more recently, uh, and you know it as you know a, a peaceful, pretty much last bastion of the uh, uh, of of India. Uh, all. You know, just before the border with Pakistan, uh, but uh, till till the seventy one war, it was a part of Pakistan. But uh, I think the Indian Army primarily did a great job of integrating them in the late nineties, uh, all the way leading up to the war in Kargil. Uh, because I remember going there in ninety three and finding a very hostile uh, group of people who uh, were not at all open to even uh, defence forces. Come, I mean, personnel or families coming in, let alone uh, the civilian population. So uh, I think. The fact that we have only further strengthened that relationship, in uh, especially in uh, in Ladakh, uh, has been a huge testament to how the Indian Army has, uh, you know, continued to build an ally and a very important ally. I mean, these are people who were uh, giving up their homes, cooking food, um, giving up their animals for the sake of, uh, you know, transportation. Um, but that cannot be really said uh, of the valley in in Kashmir, um, while. You know, parts of it, uh, northern Kashmir, are a lot more peaceful and in harmony with, uh, you know, the government and the forces. The same cannot be said for the rest of Kashmir. Uh, so, you know, just in closing, uh, how do you see that as a factor? We've seen it. We've discussed it uh, with how the Modi government has had a much stronger hand and therefore potentially alienated uh, the locals. Uh, do you see this as uh, something that, um, you know, again, um, you know? not really ever hoping for a similar situation to ever arise again. But if it were to, in whatever uh, sense or circumstance, uh, how important will it be this time around for us to have the locals on our side? I think as uh, far as uh, local support goes, what we are also very quick to forget is the fact that in 1948, uh, with the uh, insurgents from the tribal regions in Pakistan, it was the local population of the valley which did support the Indian army. They did support uh, us with everything, like you said, from arms, ammunition, livestock, and housing. And the same thing was repeated again in 65 when Pakistan launched Operation Polo. So I think 
local populist support is something the indian army a counts on but b it also prides itself on the fact that it's able to foster and maintain these relations and uh, i am quite afraid given the recent turn that events in the valley have taken and uh, this policy this taunt strong uh, modi 2.0 policy towards kashmir might be the right thing to do at this point in time but given some of the numbers we're seeing of local youth joining militancy and just general support for both delhi and the armed forces uh, falling in the valley it could be a cause for concern and turtuk like you said is a beautiful example of uh, how it has been integrated with the rest of india i mean a part which uh, didn't even belong to india in 1971 is now the only part of the an only balti region the only part of baltistan which is a part of india and uh, i actually ended up visiting it and trekking there in 2015 so it's as integral a part of india as anything else and then we come a few hundred kilometers uh, southwest to south kashmir and there we just don't feel welcome i've also been there and i think while growing up uh, a lot like you i spent about 6 years uh, in kashmir and jammu uh, in udhampur so the broader jammu region uh, the thing things are very very different i think uh, the animosity is uh, it runs much deeper now and uh, the indian army would have its task cut out if there was to be a kargil like situation now so i think the next step would be to bring the local population uh, on side right so um i think on uh, that note we can uh, uh, we can choose to um, you know bring back uh, some of these uh, uh, conversation points uh, in some of our episodes in the future i i clearly see a lot of stuff that we've gone from you know the geopolitical uh, impact of this war it was just such a changing uh, point for us i mean a turning point for us uh, all the way from uh, local and domestic kind of forces from the media to the people uh, to just the kind of international support that we were able to garner so i think uh, this you know there was what what i i'm happy we were able to uh, you know capture and kind of go beyond uh, uh you know some of the stories that uh, a lot of the media and you know both independent uh and the paid media have really been uh, uh bending around um so i'm glad we managed to uh, you know do an episode on a, on on a subject that really uh, hits home so closely uh, for the both of us